trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. The relationship between Mexico and the United States is more important than ever as it affects political and policy debates and election outcomes in both countries. What has been called a border crisis and the proposal by the former Trump administration to reinforce and expand a wall at the border has actually dominated the news and the immigration debate here in this country since 2016. Guadalupe Correra Cabrera, an associate professor in Mason Schar School of Policy and Government, is an expert in U.S.-Mexico relations, immigration, border security, social movements, and human trafficking. She was recently named the principal investigator of a research grant sponsored by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking and persons to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes. Dr. Correra Cabrera, who is from Mexico and travels and researches extensively at the U.S.-Mexican border, is a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She is also a resident scholar at the Baker's Institute Center for United States and Mexico and is the past president of the Association for Borderland Studies. Her latest book analyzes human smuggling and human trafficking in Central America and along Mexico's migration routes. With immigration and border security and a debate about how to deal with undocumented immigrants in this country not going away anytime soon, it is a pleasure to speak with someone who can provide real insight into these seemingly intractable challenges. Dr. Correa Cabrera, welcome to the show. Thank you, President Washington. It's an honor for me to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, look, I don't have to tell you this is a hot-button topic. Now, for all of you out there who don't know, here's some basic info. There are about 48 U.S.-Mexico border crossings. These are physical entities with 330 ports of entry. At these points of entry, people trying to get into the U.S. are required to open the bags for inspection. Border crossings take place by roads, by pedestrian walkways, by railroads and ferries. Just recently... The U.S. Border Patrol reported nearly 200,000 encounters with migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. And that happened just in July. That's the highest monthly total in more than two decades. The number of monthly encounters had fallen to about 16,000 in April 2020, shortly after the coronavirus outbreak. And shortly after that, actually forced the closure of the southwestern border and slowed migration across much of the world. But migrant encounters have climbed sharply since then, according to the latest data from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. 
these encounters refer to two distinct kind of events, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, apprehensions in which migrants are taken into custody in the U.S. to await adjudication and expulsions in which migrants are immediately expelled to their home country or last country of transit without being held in U.S. custodies. And most of the encounters that have occurred recently, in my understanding, have resulted in expulsions, not apprehensions. And that's under a U.S. public health order known as Title 42. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That is accurate. This important number of apprehensions and most of the numbers, uh, I mean, expulsions, have to do with a number of different causes. One of it, it's the deterioration of economic situation in the countries of the Northern Triangle and other countries in South America due to the pandemic. The economic crisis and insecurity that comes with it has made people to multiply their attempts to leave their countries and get to the United States. Another very important issue that we're observing right now has to do with the labor shortages in the United States. They're in pool and push factors. Ah, I see. Also, the works that are available in the United States, people understand that if they are able to enter the United States, they will get a job. And then also, human smuggling networks have become much more sophisticated. They have been able to organize better And if you pay the correct amount of money, the correct fees, in very important uh, fees, very high fees, people are going to get in. So these three factors explain what we are seeing. But the pandemic and the economic crisis, people don't move from the places where they are at with their culture, with the family, just because they want to take advantage of another country, but because they cannot find a situation where they can provide their families with the resources, they cannot get education and jobs. And so this is why they move and there are actors facilitating mobility and the jobs that are available. No, I get that. COVID-19 has had a very important impact on this. So let me ask a little something about yourself. You grew up near the U.S.-Mexico border? I was born and raised near Mexico City. I was raised mostly in Mexico City, but I lived eight years in Brownsville, Texas. Oh, wow. My first academic job, my first professional job in academia took place in Brownsville. I was able to leave and to do research there, and I have traveled along the whole U.S.-Mexico border, crossing all the bridges that we can cross three times. The first one in 2013, then 2019, and two months ago, I did the trip again because I'm finishing a book on the Mexico-U.S. border. Okay. Well, this is good. Look, for me and for all of the individuals out there listening, describe the border for us. Generally, when we see images of the border, it's, you know, they show a fence, right? And sometimes they show the quote-unquote wall, (laughs) and then sometimes they show a fence, literally a fence. And what you always see is what appears to be an inhospitable desert on the other side. Is that the full picture? It's not the full picture. The U.S.-Mexico border, it's very diverse, it's very different depending on the segment you are focusing on. Of course, you have the desert, but at the same time, you have very different landscapes, different type of people, different cities, culture. The border is beautiful. The border is not just a wall. It's like a third country, I would say. Two different countries, but a region where two countries share a specific culture. And we cannot talk about just 
one border, but multiple U.S.-Mexico borders. Why? Because of the difference in terms of weather, demography, geography. We have a little bit more than 68% of the border. We have a river, the Rio Grande River, but there's another part of the border when you don't have a river, that the two countries are divided by a line or by sometimes a fence, and sometimes there is no fence. So the way that you see the whole border has to be, you understood, in, in different ways. So before, for example, when people cross the border without proper documentation, where they cross it irregularly, they used to call everybody mojado. Mojado is wet back. It's a very derogatory term. And it has to do with this idea that people had that in order to cross to the United States, you had to cross a river. And it's interesting. On the Mexican side and the U.S. side of the border, borderlanders, fronterizos, share a culture, share a history, but at the same time, they are from very different countries with different institutions. So it's a fascinating world, particular types of music. It's a fantastic world. It's not inhospitable necessarily. It's, it's beautiful, too. It's a fascinating place. So how often do you travel there? I travel there as much as I can. I lived there for eight years. I still owe an apartment in Brownsville. And I travel probably on average three or even four times a year. I try to go there as much as I can just because I feel that I'm part of that region, but also because of my research. I conduct a number of interviews with borderlanders, with fronterizos, inhabitants of the border, fronterizos, ah. frontier, frontera. We call them fronterizos or borderlanders, people of the border, people in these third country. We can think of the border as a third country because you're never really in Mexico or the United States. You're in a, in a land where people speak in English and Spanish at the same time, Spanglish, and they share a particular culture that is unique to the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, the cities are those areas, or are you talking about Brownsville proper? I am talking about the whole border, but the size of the cities is very different. For example, if you go or you visit uh, Ciudad Juarez and you visit El Paso, Texas, they are big cities, important cities also, San Diego, for example, California, and Tijuana, Baja California. You have small cities, big cities. This is what I'm talking about, multiple U.S.-Mexico borders with a number of services, infrastructure that can compare to middle-sized citizens of the United States and Mexico. Given that you were there eight years, I assume you feel pretty comfortable in that region. Do you consider yourself a borderlander? I think so, yes, I do. I do. I do. Even though I wasn't born there, and it took me a while to assimilate, I feel comfortable there. I feel more comfortable there sometimes than when I am in Mexico City or in Mexico or the United States. I have the two countries in me. There is uh, my friend, Alfredo Corchado, who's a border reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and he just wrote a book, Homelands, and this is what we talk about. This is the place where I feel very comfortable, where I feel happy, where, where I feel I belong to. You say that this area is not necessarily Mexico and not necessarily the U.S., that it has its own individual culture. Do you see that evidence in the food? Do you see it in the drinks? Are the margaritas the same? That kind of thing. 
They are unique. The food at the border, I, I mean, it has, and as, as, as I said, the multiple borders, multiple types of cuisine, but this understanding in the United States of what is Mexican food, the Tex-Mex food, for example, the fajitas, the nachos, and this food that's common to the two countries, right, where the two countries find similarities, yes. But at the border, margaritas or nachos are particularly special. I am also trying to incorporate into our new book, you know, a study on the different types of margaritas because in every restaurant that we go to the water, we try a margarita to see if they are different. <laughs> and they are very good. They are probably the best margaritas that I've tried. I try them at the border because they were supposedly invented in one of the cities. There is a very interesting story about this drink and uh, different cities allege that they have invented the margarita. It's, it has to do with prohibition and uh, it's plausible that it was invented on the Mexican side of the border because of prohibition. No, this is very interesting. I've interviewed a large number of our faculty up to this point, and uh, we talked about varying issues. This is the first one <laughs> where we actually have a conversation about margaritas. So we're in an interesting place here. Let me ask you this. I heard in an interview where you explained how increased border security actually caused the challenge that we're dealing with today. And that actually caused the problem of undocumented people coming to the U.S. and that problem worsened. For example, you explain that Mexicans used to come into the U.S. to work and then go back to their families. But when we tightened the border security, we made it much more difficult to do that so that it's not really an option today so people can't go back and forth. Is that an accurate assessment? It is a very accurate assessment. In the United States, the work of immigrants is needed. This is a country of immigrants. America is great because of immigrants, and jobs are available. So people that want to make a better life from themselves find in the United States a possibility to do that, those who can enter. And with uh, tightened border security and the most recent measures, it has had very positive impacts on uh, human smugglers. Human smugglers have organized much better in order to provide or to facilitate this mobility, this mobility that facilitates that some can enter into the United States, but they cannot just go back and forth. They have to stay in the United States, pay a smuggler, and also to bring their families here because they have to be with them. They have to reunify with their families. So it has been causing a number of problems. It has benefited uh, migrant smuggling networks that at many times are not taking care of the migrants, and it has created a space of violence for migrants, very dangerous journey that they take in order to get to the United States. Jobs are available. So there is double standard. There are double standards in the United States about this because this country still needs the work of the migrants. You know, this is very interesting. You brought up something that starts me thinking about an issue. You're absolutely right. As you look at the country, immigrants come into the country. They generally take lower wage jobs they work incredibly hard. They provide a basis for which the country can grow. Many of those individuals come in and, and within a generation, they are not just Americans, but they're successful Americans. And then that opens up a network for more people to come in at those lower rungs, right? But in the end, you come in, you move up. And so the basis of America is really a history of people coming into the country, expanding its economic base, 
becoming upwardly mobile in the economy and thereby providing a framework for an even larger group of individuals to come into the country. When you cut that off, you have to ask yourself, what are you actually playing with? Could you be putting yourself in a position where you are cutting off that economic growth engine that provides a basis for the ultimate growth that comes from expanding of that economic pie by having those individuals come in. Does that make any sense? That makes sense, but let's also think about two conditions that also explain what is happening today and how, what has been happening with undocumented immigration in the United States. Would you keep this labor force invisible to some extent that without them being able to leave illegally in this country? When they are not going to be useful for the society, they go and get deported. This is what I have seen in my interviews. A number of people who are deported are those who had spent a number of years, decades in the country, and they are older and they cannot just leave. They don't have their benefits to live like any other American. So having people that is invisible in this country has been good for this society. This is one thing that it's important to consider, right? And the deportation procedures, there's a system that allows people to come here to pay their taxes. It's not true that undocumented immigrants do not pay taxes. So, yes, it's not closing the door. It's selectively closing the door to some because the jobs are available and people are getting hired. This is important because if immigrants were not going to be welcome and exactly you would want to design a policy to stop undocumented immigration, then you have to focus or you have to target on those that are providing the jobs, the employers, and that's not what is happening. And also politics. Politics play a very important role. In a way, the, the subject of immigration really touches bottoms that are very sensitive, and it's a great tool for politicians to get or not elected in office, pro or anti-immigration, play into elections. I still believe that there's a larger economic question here that has to be answered. Think about it this way. As you heard when I began the podcast with the information that I highlighted, with the coronavirus and the forced closure of the southwestern border and slowed immigration across most of the world, we stopped the flow of individuals who would come into the country, both illegally and legally. So you cut that off during COVID. At the same time, the country experiences well in excess of 600,000 deaths in this country, many of which were people at the lowest economic rung of our society. They were older individuals. It's about a third of them. But then in that next tranche were lots of people in that lower economic rung, right? So those individuals lost their lives. And you've cut off the very economic engine that would come in the country and take some of those lower paying jobs. And so now we get to a point in our society now where there are whole cohorts and industries that can't find people to come in and enter into those lower wage job sections. People say, oh, it's because they're not paying enough. But actually, the issue may be that we have fewer people because we've actually had some death in this country. In addition to that, we've cut off the spigot of individuals who could come in and do that work. And so you're not talking a few hundred thousand people. You're literally talking about millions of people who can't enter into the workforce. And when you couple that with the fact that we have been, for lack of a better term, expelling individuals at such a high rate, like I told you earlier, most of the encounters 
that we saw in July were actually expulsions, where people were sent back to their country of origin. And these are people who are coming looking for work in the very low-wage industries that we're struggling to find people in now. I can't help to believe that these problems are related. These challenges in the country are definitely related. And we're seeing the outcomes where people are talking about inflation and they're having to pay more to get people to work. All of this comes together, in my opinion. Yes, they are related significantly. And at the same time, the media and politicians in this country have been focusing on distorting the reality, what is really happening. Yes, the borders have been closed to undocumented and illegal immigration. And what has happened? Border cities, border towns, those towns that I have explained, have suffered the most because there is a lot of exchange between these cities. That's one thing. On the other hand, there is a black market that is represented by migrant smuggling networks. As I said, the demand finds its own supply. So people are entering this country to do the jobs that are needed. That's a very important point. So are you noticing that these illegal entities are actually increasing now that the legal mechanisms are becoming more difficult? They are becoming more sophisticated, and in a way, you have an oligopolization of these illicit activities. It's the same thing of what happens with drugs. Provision generates the existence of the so-called drug cartels with our oligopolic structures, very few, very powerful, well-structured and organized entities that make available drugs in a country that doesn't allow the consumption of the trade of drugs, the same thing with people. It's exactly the same thing. Hmm. Uh, you don't allow people to come, but jobs are available. This country needs undocumented right. immigration. So these people, these organized entities in the middle who are smuggling people over, what do we call them? What, what's the name? This idea of one man, coyotes. Uh, coyotes. Coyotes. Yes, this is the way that popularly they are known, but they are now businesses. They are corporations now. It's not just one man. It's not just a family. These are becoming more well-organized. You cannot exist in this business. You have to bribe authorities on both sides of the border. You have to have a business structure. So we are talking about corporations now. Oh, We're not that's interesting. So, well, I've always had this question, and you might be quite the person to ask. So what does it cost? If someone wanted to cross, what would they pay? This is a very good question, and uh, many journalists ask this question, trying to find one fee or a range. It depends. It depends where you find these migrant smuggling networks, where you start your journey. There is transcontinental migration. We have seen that a number of people from different countries of the African continent, people from Southeast Asia, people from Ecuador, Brazil, Northern Triangle. So it depends. For example, people coming from the Northern Triangle, and I, need, and I know much better about this, they can pay between 6000 or 5000 to even 14000 depending on the way that they are going to be transported. Sometimes they take buses in Mexico and then an 18-wheeler from uh, the border to the checkpoint where they can go somewhere else. And it really depends on if they stay in a stash house, they get a guide, and the guide will walk with them 
them or for example some of them meet the smuggler at the border when they get deported people who get deported at the border sometimes they don't have any more roots in Mexico or in Central America so they want to go back immediately and so sometimes they work with these groups sometimes these groups are connected to some extent with so-called cartels or drug trafficking organizations or criminal organizations that are connected to drugs in some way so uh, sometimes some of the people that are deported they need to go back they accept to work with some of these groups sometimes they are obliged to work with these groups it's, it's a very difficult question to respond because some of them have to pay three thousand just to cross the border or one thousand it depends it depends on the model or the region different groups transport people depending on the segment of the border that you're talking about for example in some segments of the Arizona Sonora border you have the Sinaloa cartel involved directly smuggling people Hmm. And I have been to these cities where they dominate these activities. These models are very diverse, and we need to understand them in a very different way. Wow. Wow. So one of President Biden's initiatives calls for $861 million in foreign assistance for Central America as part of a $4 billion plan to address the root causes of immigration, which the Congressional Service indicates are social, economic, and security concerns, along with natural disasters and corrupt governments. If appropriated, do you believe that this money will be well spent? It's a very important question. I understand that the United States government understands very well what is needed to do, addressing the root causes of undocumented immigration and also dismantling human smuggling networks with Operation Sentinel, with a joint task force Alpha, dealing with human smuggling and human trafficking. But addressing the root causes is very important. They understand this, too. This is not the first time there's an attempt to address this problem, addressing the root causes of undocumented immigration. There is a problem with corruption in the Latin American, I mean, in the Central American countries, in Mexico, and also in the United States. And sometimes there is no political will to collaborate, to cooperate. And uh, the politicians, not only in Central America, also Mexico and the United States, there needs to be collaboration and mechanisms to make sure that these resources are going to be spent in the correct way. And this is what I haven't seen. I haven't seen a plan to see how these resources are going to be spent. I haven't seen this as a plan that incorporates the participation of all these countries. I haven't seen that. They're just putting a, like an idea that's very important, but there is not a concrete plan to mm-hmm. spend these resources and to address with the issue of corruption. Well, look, I just heard you tell me that the ultimate driver, which I believe to be the case, is that there are jobs here. There's opportunity here. We don't want that to go away, right? <laughs> we, we want there to continue to be jobs here. That's a good thing. And so if that is one of the ultimate causes and one that you don't want to go away, it seems like a solution is to have increased legal migration, right? Absolutely. You figure out what's the amount of people we need in the country and work from there as Uh, as opposed to having these artificial limits that clearly are not meeting the job demand in the country, right? Because if you're not meeting the job demand, that demand creates the opportunity for people to come. 
Absolutely, absolutely, President Washington. You understand extremely well what is happening. There is a problem here that sometimes politics is in the way. And this is what has not allowed this country to move forward to solve the problems, to fix the immigration system that now it's broken. The United States needs the work by undocumented immigrants. There's a hypocrisy here, and also there is the greed of businesses in the United States. It's better not to recognize the existence of these people, maintaining them invisible and not paying them the just salaries. This is a matter of justice, of social justice, and also this is a matter of political will. But it seems that in this country, the two political parties sometimes have played one role or the other one and played with the issue of immigration to achieve their electoral goals. When did it fall apart? Was it after 9-11? We've always had immigration in the country, and we've always welcomed in large numbers of people from one particular ethnic group, right? We can go back and look in the... You know, in the 1800s in California with the Chinese, right? We can go and we can look at the Irish. We can look back and the Italians migrated. The Polish migrated. And these were large groups of people who came over into the country. They worked those jobs at the lowest levels. They became integrated into society. And then they're well-producing members of society today. That, to me, is America. Somewhere along the line, we got off of that track. We got off of that direction. Where did it happen? Was it a 9-11 issue? Was it some other kind of thing? What, what are your ideas? This is a very important question. I appreciate this question. It has to do with history. Oh, I mean, there are cycles of immigration. When we try to understand this, it's about economic forces. After the Second World War, people were more welcome because the United States was reconstructing for the world. At this time, you could produce in other countries, in China, in Mexico, in the Philippines, and it was cheaper for the businesses. And of course, September 11 added a complexity, the so-called war on drugs in Mexico and the drug war problem, drug-related violence also increased supposedly the need to close the border, but also greed. Businesses, the so-called border military industrial complex that benefits from you know incorporating technology, building walls and all that, it gives a number of contractors that earn a lot of money the possibility of getting richer. So there are many factors that have contributed in the past couple of decades to make this problem bigger. And unfortunately, and this has to do with economics, it has to do with economic power. Big corporations have always benefited from this and are benefiting more from cheaper labor. And the people who enter are the strongest, the ones who have more resources, the ones who can, I'm saying this in, a, in an imaginary way, climb the border fence, which the strongest, the best people are getting in the United States and are getting uh, lower and lower salaries. No, I get that. I get that 100%. You know, it seemed like we were on a path to resolving this with NAFTA. Are you familiar with that? Can you talk a little bit about what were those parameters and why did it fall apart? 
it is a very interesting perspective and a very interesting point to develop uh, because with NAFTA, the free mobility of goods was present, but not the free mobility of labor. And this is always what happens with provision. When there is provision, there is a space for black markets. And this is where human smuggling started to appear. Human smuggling networks started to become better organized. And when the journey people would take in their countries to the United States became more complex, more dangerous. So it wasn't solved. It wasn't solved because there was free mobility of goods, not free mobility of labor. If we Ah. had continued that path and opening the borders, I think prohibition is what has created the cartels, has created, well, at some point, prohibition of alcohol created violence and created gangs that were smuggling the alcohol. So that is what has been causing that. I couldn't say that because of NAFTA, we had a path that was going to be uh, without obstacles. The obstacles were there. And greed and economic inequalities have always existed. So the United States and Canada had a relatively open border among their people, but not with Mexicans because it's also a source of cheap labor again. If you open the borders of North America to people, their salaries are going to go up according to economic mechanisms of demand and supply, and that is not convenient for those who have, you know, a lot of power and a lot of economic power, I would say. NAFTA has been extended, and it was renegotiated by President Trump with more benefits to the United States versus Mexico. So this has to do with inequality at the core and unequal power between or among the three countries of North America. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about the challenges associated with DREAMers. Right now, the U.S., we estimate that there's somewhere between 11 million and 12 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. We have a number of those students here at Mason. They do extraordinarily well. They know no other country. They grew up here. They were born here. How should the U.S. deal with this problem? Dreamers are the kids of people who came to work very hard here. They have been educated here. Mm -hmm. They are an amazing source of human capital in the country. It's a matter of justice, and it's a matter of making this country even greater. Unfortunately, again, politics get in the way. So there are politicians that play with that idea in order to provide this false solution to problems that are not on immigrants. Immigrants are a source of wealth to this country, are not the source of a problem. Unfortunately, politics have gotten in the way, and dreamers must be provided with the legal paths to citizenship. And this is fair. This is good for everybody. They already pay their taxes. They will pay more taxes. They will feel nationals and provide more work with the happiness. It's going to be a better country if we stop playing with these false expectations or playing with politics. The dreamers need to be legalized, need to have a path towards citizenship in the country. Otherwise, if we keep them as they are right now, or we keep DACA, for example, or DAPA, which is something like deferred action of deportation. So they will be deported when they are not useful to this country. They will never feel safe. They will never feel secure and will always be maintained as second 
second-class citizens. And this is unfair. This will cause what we have now, divisions among the society, who's legal and who's not legal. This is also about stability. This is also about the unification, the unity of this country. One of the things that we like to do here in this podcast is we're educating our students, right? And we have students here who really want to work towards solving this problem or work towards constructive solutions to solving this problem. And so if we were able to put our hands on one or two things the country could do, what would you think they would be? Comprehensive immigration reform is extremely important, not for other countries or for immigrants, for the United States of America. A path towards citizenship or a legal path to make people being able to work here, to go back and forth if they are needed in this country, this is very important. So our Mm. students understanding that if they work in government, if they work in the media, understanding that they can be also forces of change by helping these decisions to be made or pushing for these policies to be made or reporting on the reality of undocumented immigration. I think the truth is important. Undocumented immigration, it's not a problem for the country. Being conscious of that can help us to solve the problem in a comprehensive way. Temporary visas are important because this country needs temporary workers, essential workers. We have seen that essential workers during COVID, Mm -hmm. many of them are undocumented immigrants that really did the work for a lot of Americans. That's right. Without question. This is going to solve a lot of problems, and this is going to create, again, a more unified society without this sense of the other being this undocumented migrant does not belong to this society. And a stronger society, a more unified society, will be a more successful country in a very different geopolitical situation now when China in particular and Russia and other countries uh, and the world are advancing while in the United States we have these divisions. And a lot of these divisions have been caused by by the subject of the border and undocumented immigration. No, without question, without question. The research for your latest book project actually analyzes social movements in migrant caravans. I couldn't tell you how big of an issue this was in the last election, so much to the point where you literally would see throngs of people on television, you know, and I saw slogans like, they're coming, they're coming for our border. And so this was a hot button topic, and in my opinion, a scare tactic. Were the caravans a spontaneous wave of people from Central America, or was there something else going on there? What's the real story? Well, of course, a number of people are in need of living the very difficult conditions that they undergo in their country. There is economic need. There is insecurity, gang violence. I have visited those countries, the countries of origin, and the conditions and the situation for many people. It's extremely complicated. So some people cannot continue living there. If you understand the gang model, if you understand gang violence, if you have visited, for example, Haiti right now with all the problems of political problems, the earthquake, and all the conditions that they have lived through the past couple of decades, or Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, the civil wars. So people are in need. Jobs exist. This is important. Pull and push factors. People will come to work in the United States. The border is closed to some extent. So 
the families need to reunify. So you have pull factors, jobs and the reunification of families, and you have push factors. That combines and that generates the need of a number, a very important number of people to come to the United States. Now, adding the economic crisis because of COVID, that makes the you know a perfect storm. The migrant caravans, it's a very important and interesting event that happened exactly some days, a couple of weeks, they started to take place a couple of weeks before the midterm election. I mean, some days before the midterm elections. And that was utilized by the two parties to generate a perception that they wanted that would be beneficial for them. So there is something very organic and spontaneous about the migrant caravans. People have to pay very high fees to come to the United States. They found in the caravans a way to do it supposedly without paying a fee, but also there were political actors involved and motivating these movements. The coverage of one side or the other one of the political spectrum in the United States, utilizing these images of migrants as a scare tactic. I'm talking about the Trump administration at that time because the last caravan that we have known of happened just before Joe Biden started in, in, the, in his presidency. I wouldn't doubt that they will form again. And on the other hand, the utilization also of the images of the caravans from the party that was opposed to the Trump administration making Trump to look bad. So there was a lot of politics. There was a lot of misunderstanding and the utilization of communications and media to portray the situation leaving the migrants in the middle. Because also, Trump supporters utilize it to scare people to say, here it comes, we need a wall, and who can build the wall? Donald Trump. But on the other hand, the other political party also utilize, these people are coming and spontaneously are escaping from violence when also the situation is not necessarily about refugees. We have economic migrants, and this is why comprehensive immigration reform is very important, to understand the reality of what is happening. Just not putting everybody in the same basket, but understanding the complexity of an issue that involves not just one country, not just the United States, not just Mexico, not just the countries of the Northern Triangle or other countries. There are multiple causes of this problem, and we need to address them by utilizing multiple responses and collaboration collaboration between uh, the different nations. It is really a complex issue. Let me ask you this. There was a recent article in Harper's that explained in some detail how the U.S. could do more to alleviate some of the problems in Central America that led to the migrations by being tougher on the corrupt governments. You talk a lot about corruption in what you've told me here today. Now, that story particularly focused on Honduras. Is that too simplistic? This is an important cause of the problem that we have right now, and a fundamental one, structural one, corruption. The problem is that there are sovereignty issues involved here, and the United States has many other problems right now with Afghanistan and the effect Mm -hmm. that this is going to be playing out in the world and the role of China. It is a very interesting perspective because the United States was not going to solve all the problems in the world, definitely. This is affecting the hemisphere. This is affecting everybody in the hemisphere. People are dying in a very dangerous journey to the United States. And this is dividing the United States society in many ways. 
And I think that solving the problem or trying to solve the problem or addressing the problem of corruption is important, but also comprehensive immigration reform is important. Also, dismantling human smuggling networks is important. Addressing the root causes is very important, but, I mean, corruption, there are so many important causes that we had already talked about today that need to be uh, given equal attention. So we cannot just focus on one thing, thinking that addressing or solving the problem of corruption, we're going to be solving the problem of undocumented immigration. It's not like that. It's very complex, and it will take time. And it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in one year or two years. Addressing the issue of corruption and making these resources to work for people not to have to leave their nations and not to be dominating certain territories in these countries is very complex. So we have to be patient and we all have to collaborate and to cooperate and to be honest. This is the first thing, to be honest about what are the causes of irregular immigration and how to address that and stop letting politics drive the decisions because this is affecting the whole hemisphere and the United States in particular. No, I get it. You've spent time amongst the individuals that are crossing, coming into the border, but also amongst cartels and some of the other things. You ever felt you were in a dangerous position or, you know, I'm in a tough spot here, something bad can happen to me? This is the work that I have done that I think it's important and that I decided to do. I have done that since I arrived to Brownsville, Texas, on the other side of the border. There was a very violent confrontation between two very violent groups of organized crime. And when you go along the migrant routes, you also face a number of risks, a number of dangers, less than the migrants themselves because they are more vulnerable. They don't have the privilege that I do. Yes, I have felt uncomfortable in a number of situations. Yes, I have been fearful. But this is the work I want to do. This is my commitment to an issue that I'm being understanding, but I don't understand completely. And I'm willing to take the risk for my work and for the purpose that I think it's important. So I have understood that this is affecting the lives of other people, and I have the opportunity to understand it, or at least to communicate what is going on and the causes. So yes, I have felt fear. I have developed also a way to protect myself, to be cautious and careful by complying with all the protocols and by never putting others at risk. And I'm trying my best, and I will continue doing the work that I want to do. I'm just a professor, and my commitment is with education and research, and I will continue doing this. Well, you are indeed a hero, and you're indeed doing heroic work. You're definitely one in which our students could look up to, and I am ecstatic to have you as a member of our faculty. Thank you very much for the opportunity, President Washington. It was a pleasure to meet you today and the opportunity that you have given me to talk to our community, to our students, to the faculty and staff of George Mason University has been very important. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Well, that's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I'd like to thank Guadalupe Correra Cabrera, Associate Professor at Mason Shar School of Policy and Government for shedding some light on the situation at the U.S.-Mexican border. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, 
Go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.